0: Corey here, and this is Everything Is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guests to really understand who they are and how they think. If your newsletter is a core focus for your marketing strategy right now, you have to take a look at Sparkloop. Sparkloop allows you to set up a referral program directly in your emails. Simply connect to your newsletter software, set up the rewards to incentivize your subscribers, and then go about business as usual, creating outstanding content. And then watch as your newsletter growth makes a noticeable and sustainable jump up forever. Nicholas Platt of the Lifespan newsletter said that they grew their newsletter to almost 50,000 subscribers in just five months, and Sparkloop was the key to that growth. Check them out at sparkloop.app. On the show today is Taylor Holiday. Taylor went from professional baseball player to accidental e-commerce marketer to agency owner, and now being a part of a whole host of businesses all related to -to direct-to-consumer e-commerce. I wanted to bring him on because Taylor has a fascinating background in sports that actually very tangibly affected his career as a marketer. He's established himself and his agency, Common Threat Collective, as one of the top resources for D2C marketing, and he's got some amazing experience and insights on Facebook advertising in particular that we can all learn from you'll hear about how they got a power balance bracelet onto the wrists of millions and millions of athletes, how he worked with athletes like Kobe Bryant, Drew Brees, and Derrick Rose, and how a trip to Vegas for a high-stakes poker tournament ended up getting them a crazy amount of free advertising and exposure. All right, Taylor, to start out, I would love to know, did you ever think that you'd be in D2C and e-commerce running all these businesses uh, that you have today?
1: Sorry, I'm letting the countdown. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm very much an accidental entrepreneur, never had a vision for this life. Like I, so my backstory is I was a professional baseball player, um, spent my whole life focused on that school was a vehicle for that. Uh, my calendar was just an organized set of tasks related to that. My friend, like literally everything was centered around that. And so the day I got released, um, I very much entered this sort of second life crisis of wondering what on earth I was going to do, and my solution at the time was I thought I was going to be a lawyer, so I was prepping. I was in LSAT prep classes, and because um, I was a I was a poli sci major with a minor in psychology, who liked to argue. So that was like, well, I guess that's sort of the, the culmination of those skills. Um, so it, when I was, I had a friend that was starting a company and they said hey do you need some work why don't you come in between class and you can print the orders off the website and take them to the post office for us and that was my entry point into direct to consumer was the me and my label printer and uh you know uspsbn that i walked over at the end of every afternoon so that was my uh, initial foray into what would become my life from there yeah that's amazing
0: what um I know you, you've told the story a bazillion times and you have a lot of experience within the whole world of baseball and and athletes and and connections, but what do you feel like you took away from the whole experience that you still use today? Like looking back on all the games you played, the coaches, the players, like, what is it, that you feel like you sort of brought with you into this
1: world? Man, there's so many things. Um, this is an interesting one that I I haven't talked a lot about. So baseball has changed so much since when I played okay? Um, when we were, and this is going to be a little bit nerdy baseball, but hang with me for relevance here. When we were growing up, we were taught to hit the ball on the ground up the middle of the field. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like we would take countless hours of batting practice with the goal of hitting hard ground balls to the middle or to the second baseman. Like there was drills that we would do to, to go through this. And what has happened now over the last three to five years with sort of this, uh, Data revolution in baseball is. It turns out that's like a ground ball to the center of the field is the least valuable outcome that you can possibly generate. Okay, like literally, it, it, it's like it feels so obvious when you look at a baseball field. There's a pitcher and there's a center fielder. They're all standing right there. There's two infielders. Like there's all these people in the middle of the field, and it turns out this thing that we were taught never to do, which was hit a fly ball to the pool side, is actually the highest expected value outcome that you can have as a hitter. Um, And that's why you see baseball moving towards sort of more three true outcomes, a lot of home runs, strikeouts, and walks. But the reason I tell that story is because I was taught by some of the best instructors in the game, best coaches around, and I was taught fundamentally wrong in a lot of ways. Hmm. And one of the things it's always reminded me of is like this idea of strong opinions loosely held um, and to be constantly in search of where you're wrong. Um... And so that's like an odd lesson that I learned. There's so many from sports, but that's one that I look back on and just think like, wow, I was surrounded by all the people who knew and they were wrong. They were wrong. And uh, there is such a good chance that I am wrong right now. That's a great setup for listening to me on my podcast. Right. So right. there you go. But there's Take a really the grain of salt. That what you think is right is wrong. And, and if you can accept that, it makes you sort of endlessly curious.
0: Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, I want to reverse back to Power Balance and sort of your entry yeah. into e commerce, this whole world of D2C. Um, when I first heard the story, it was, I think, one of my favorite, like, sort of founder origin stories of all time. Yeah. I would love for you to just kind of like walk through, I mean, how that story wow. started, ends, everything in between. If you can talk about Power Balance a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's wild. So, my friend, Josh, who's still my partner, Josh Redarmill is still our partner at right now. And his older brother, Troy, They we had been friends for 30 years. His mother was my preschool teacher. Um, and we've just been like brothers our whole lives. And when I was playing, the thing about Josh and his family, like they were like serial entrepreneurs in a way that like wasn't normal for my life. But his dad always had something, a vibrator machine, uh, you know, this a new like Under Armour wicking material, like always something, right? Mm. And they were were into um, a lot of like chiropractics and Eastern medicine stuff um, as well. And so I would be, when I was playing, when I was a professional, they would send me these like hologram stickers and they'd be like, put these in your shoes, you know? And it was like, okay guys, whatever. This is the next wacky thing that you have. Um, and that was like my initial interaction to this, another thing that they were doing. And then when I came back, um, like I, I didn't have any, like the idea of being an entrepreneur wasn't a thing. Like I'd never, that term wasn't, something I idolize, or it's not like it is now. It wasn't, they weren't these rock stars that you were trying to aspire to be. It was just like two guys doing a thing that I'd watched them do a bunch of times and sewing together wristbands and ironing on logos. And I needed some work. I wanted to make 12 bucks an hour in between class to pay my, you know, my rent with my buddies and to buy some beers. Like, it, like I didn't, this was a career path. Like that's not what I was trying to do. But, um, that product, it was just, it was wild. So they, they had started by selling hologram stickers. And the idea was that they were charged with an energy that interacted with your body, you know? Um, and the when they moved it into a silicone wristband, they developed, they went away from stickers that they would give to surfers and everybody else. And they developed the silicone wristband. And when that happened, the product exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm talking like zero to 60 million in two and a half years, three years, like really crazy growth, prepaid acquisition, pure organic flywheel, like wild, wild stuff. And um, as the business grew, it sort of became this thing of like, wow, this is like a real company. What's your job going to be, Taylor? You've been sticking around the whole time. And they're, they're like, well, you're the young person. So why don't you figure out e-commerce, social media, and you know, some famous people. So will you message them on Facebook and we'll make you in charge of influencer marketing. And I'm like, great. How do you set up a Facebook page? What is Magento? Like, I knew nothing. Like, Googling what is an athlete contract if I was going to try and sign. Like, I had no idea. But what, I, what we got was this, like, sandbox to play in. And um, there was nobody else. And I was there. And I worked hard enough. And I didn't want to be seen as my buddy's friend. So I wanted to become the expert in my domain. I wanted to be. One of the things I learned early on in a company that's really important for somebody that's starting out in a startup is you want to be famous for something. When there's a problem, you want your name to come up somewhere. And I was smart enough to realize that. And so I, w- I very quickly was like, ooh, this website, this is going to be mine. If anyone has a question about the website or social or digital, they're going to ask me. And I worked really hard to be the, the, the person that was most informed in that area. And it, it really just paid off that the world went that way. But um, what we had as a community is like we had an incredible network of peripheral relationships to famous people. And one of the things that I always talk about that we've is a lesson we learned from power balance is that if you want to deal with celebrity, one of the things to consider is what product categories are they precluded from participating in? Mm. So what I mean by that is like Nike contracts. If you think about, you know, the biggest Nike athletes, the Patrick Mahomes of the world, you know, their, their contract precludes them from so many product categories beyond shoes. Like if you read a Nike contract, it's nowadays, it's basically head to toe, everything from golf to polo shirts, to training equipment, everything. But at the time, what we found was that there was this niche on the wrist that nobody had in their Mm. contract. Like there was no product at that moment where people were doing wrist deals. There was like three guys with a watch deal and that was it. So what we were able to basically do is go to every agent and every major athlete and be like, hey, your option is $0 or whatever we're offering you. Will you take our offer? And we were able to get the most incredible athlete of celebrities and athletes because there was no other competing offer. Like at one time on our athlete team, we had the, the MVPs of all four major sports, Cristiano Ronaldo, Shaquille O'Neal. Like we, like the roster was just bonkers. You know, you can go back and look in that era and there's sports illustrated covers with Kevin Durant on the cover with the thing that we paid him $0 for. Just like, it was wild. It just became a cultural phenomenon. And to watch that happen, to see something go from like in a room with your buddies to on the wrists of all the famous people in the world is like intoxicating. It's like the pride, the sort of the feeling of it all is just uh it met everything in me that being an athlete did a team for a common goal celebrations of victories. Like, and at the time we were 25 years old and single, we just lived at the office. Every weekend was a different event. I was at every AVP beach volleyball event for two years. Like it just, there was nothing else to do and we loved it. Um, And so like, it was just an incredible experience. Now we made every mistake along the way um, and ended up in bankruptcy three years later. Um, but but like we just got to learn in a way that is such an experience that I'm so grateful for that uh, you can't get just walking into a corporate world and trying to work your way up. like the level of responsibility I was given relative to my skill set was massively disproportionate. Sorry, no worries hey, um, Yeah, can I finish my podcast and I'll be out? Yeah. Thanks. No sorry worries. about that. Um, so yeah, so it was the whole thing was so wild man. you know at one point, Um, we had the naming rights deal to the Sacramento Kings arena. was called the power balance pavilion. Um, we had, we were the title sponsor of the rock and roll marathon. We had a deal with Kobe Bryant in China. I sat with Jay Z in his office in New York city and negotiated it. Like watched us talk like just stuff. Like I went and sat in a rod's house in his front yard and watched him record a batting DVD that we were a sponsor of. And my buddy had been drunk the night before and threw up (laughs) in a rod's playground in his house without him knowing, like, just like, The stupidest stuff that we just like, and the biggest thing I I admit that I, that I didn't understand about that moment was how not normal it was. Like I took for granted that those relationships would be around forever. And if I could go back, I would have worked so much harder to maintain the, the network of relationships. Now it's still like I have pieces of it all. But I had no idea the rooms I was in and what it would have mattered if I had been really intentional about that because we were just too naive. Right. I, I want
0: to get back to the athletes in a second, but I remember being in high school playing basketball and one of the, the yep. guys came in with this new thing on his wrists. And we're all like, hey, what's that? Yep. Like what and he's all, you know, telling us about, oh, well, it helps you with your with your chi and your balance and helps you shoot better yeah. and yep. focuses your mind and, and all this stuff. And I just remember thinking like, wow, well, I came out of nowhere. And then everyone started watching or started wearing them.
1: Why? It was just. Why do you
0: think that it it took off so quickly and sort of like went viral organically?
1: So, if you think about like one of the things that we always talk about is does your product have the take it off and start a conversation vibe to it? So, like with Kalo, when we ran Kalo Silicone Rings, it was like this thing where it's super easy to take it off and hand it to somebody and start a conversation about it and power balance everyone saw it so everyone went just did exactly what you just described what is that and then it's a story where you're like come on bullshit like you and then there's the test and so what happens is it's a product that's in every conversation every time somebody's mm. wearing it and that's like incredibly powerful right like i've listened to uh Helena Hambrecht, who's the founder of house talk about this, where she designed the bottle of house to stand out on your rack so that anybody who sees it, it's always this point of conversation when you have people over, whatever, like that idea of designing, understanding like the attributes of your product that have a capacity to turn it into an organic flywheel. Like there just isn't a better one than power balance ever. Like it just was so we made them in bright colors. They've got a hologram. It's people argue about it. It's like, you, you know, the idea that like, uh, you create a Facebook ad and sometimes it's great that there's nothing but arguments in the comments of the ad. Like it's sort of that it's an instant argument, which makes it spread to a bunch of people really, really fast. Um, and then like, again, it just became cool. Cause we put it on to cool people and then that just made it go bonkers. And another big piece of it was like the global impact, um, is that, At at its peak, 60% of the revenue from Power Balance was international. It was uh, Brazil. It was, uh, you know, Spain was a massive country. Japan, these places, the the product was like cocaine. Like we would sell individual hologram stickers for like $60. And it became such a big, like even counterfeit industry that we would have the local sort of FBI versions of these countries pulling over fleets of semi-trucks with counterfeit products. And like, it was, it, I think it's hard to describe how wild that experience was. And like, there was points at, in Madrid, Spain, where Josh, our f- my founder would go over there and he would be like a celebrity. And if you turned on any like day team, daytime talk show, people would be wearing like seven of them. They were in like 450 stores in Madrid alone. Like just the stupidest thing of just catching the zeitgeist in this crazy way that, um, it's so hard to replicate. Like, it's, it's not a thing that I'm ever like, Oh, the thing we're going to do for your brand is the power balance strategy. Like, it's like, no, that's, a, you can't do that for almost any product. And it was just, um, it was insane. It was super, yeah. super cool. I,
0: I might already know the answer to this question, but, uh, one of the things you also s- sort of skim by really quickly was the fact that, you know, you're, you're, uh, sort of the marketing guy, all of a sudden you're you're doing work for the company and then they put you in charge yeah. of influencer marketing. How do you even decide, sort of, what to do, why you're doing it? You know, uh, later on, there was the rights totally. to um, the pavilion and all sorts of,
1: you know, name your rights. Yep. But like, w- what went into those decisions? So, so th- this is this is in a lot of ways, and this is the thing. Sometimes not knowing is the best thing. Like, what I mean by that is that I knew who famous people was i was a huge sports fan like i could look out and go oh yeah derrick rose is next and that was the year you know derrick rose won the mvp or matt kemp's the coolest baseball player like that wasn't hard to identify but what i didn't have any idea is like what should a deal be so i literally would just think like like i thought of it in terms of sports contracts so that's what i like understood again i was an athlete so i just thought like oh well if i want to do a deal with derrick rose it should be a two-year deal and there should be performance incentives (laughs) and it should be like for the and like, it's like sort of free agency. So it's, it's comparative market rates of what he can get somewhere else. And there's no other option. So I would literally like, and I I probably sounded like an idiot. Like if you played back the phone calls, it's probably laughable, but I would just call like Matt Kemp's agent and be like, Hey, uh, for $25,000, would you do a two-year deal with a one appearance? And I'll give you another 25 if he wins X award. And they would be like, yeah, you know, Taylor is one day rate. And I'd be like, well, you know, It would just go back and forth and I would just make Mm. stuff up, like honestly. And um, in a lot of ways, like I think about now, like my contract negotiation skills or whatever, there's something about being naive to what should be done that allows you to dream about new ways to do it, you know, that is just like really freeing. And literally it was like, and then once I got a deal with one of them, then I would just be like, Drew Brees' agent, hey, Derek Rose did it for this much. Would you do it for that much? And then it became just super easy because I had... I had a proof case. It was like, this is the deal. Do you want it? Yes or no? You know, and then it was like just easy to go through them one by one. And then we sort of learned and like the the Power Balance Pavilion deals or like the the Rock and Roll Marathon, those were bigger things that I wasn't personally just responsible for. But um, it all sort of like just compounded where you're trying to assess. And the funny thing is, it's like, Nowadays, I think about influencer deals and so much of it is like this direct ROI that you're able to attribute to their posts or whatever. Like there was none of that. This was like, we're going to put you on a POP and Dick's Sporting Goods and we're going to do a photo shoot and we're going to shoot some videos and we're going to make a custom custom band at some point. Like there was no attempt at measuring. And in some ways, again, I think that was freeing is that sometimes you get lost in what you perceive that you can measure. And the reality is there's so much that you can't. And back in the days when we just accepted that you couldn't, there was pros and cons to that. And then I think um, there was freedom to do things that were really impactful and had sort of more cultural impact um, that was not directly tied to measurable ROI. Whereas today, I think that there's, there's a pros and cons to some of those decisions that I'm, I'm sure we wouldn't have made them if, if we were
0: obligated Right. If that. it was more the norm to be like, well, what's the ROI and how are we going to be able to track it? And you just kind of get caught totally. up in all the details. And then all of a sudden you spend three months doing nothing and you're sort of you know waiting around.
1: Yeah. That. And I know, like, I can say that like we built that business walking around with a book of pictures and like that was at every event, it was our book of pictures of athletes. Here's the photos of everybody that we're wearing. And we showed that book to a million people. And so like, I know that that got us deals at retailers, that that got us into events, that that got us more athletes, that that sold us product. And it was like, so what's the measurable ROI of that book that I got to walk around with and show to a million people? Like, hard to say, but I can say that it was a major impact on the business was just that book of photos of famous people that you trusted wearing yeah. the product. Yeah. I mean,
0: it's social proof, right? Just being able to show the picture and saying, Hey, Jerry yeah. Reese has it. why don't, why don't you, right? It's, that's right. it's a no brainer. Right. Um, I know you that's also right. had, uh, you had your hands in a lot of different sort of industries, if you will. I mean, there was NFL athletes, NBA athletes. I believe there's also yeah. poker. There was like, what was the, the span,
1: <laughs> uh, across the board? So we were just, again, like this freedom, like something happens when like all you do all day is just think about your thing that you're obsessed with is like you're constantly on the lookout for ways to like find opportunities. And the biggest challenge when you're selling, it's the same thing with a ring is if you're selling a wristband is like, how do you photograph it? Like if you take a picture of somebody far away, you can't see it, right? And so you have to think about what are moments where you can contextually see someone's face and their hand simultaneously. It's like, it's a weird, like, Challenge in developing marketing collateral, and so we uh, we would always sit around and like try and find spots where we could see that. And one, and this was like at the peak of the the poker hype, right? This was this was the year it was the November Nine, which was there was nine millionaires at the table, um, and they they played it up until um, September or up till September, and then they took a month off, and then they were going to play the November Nine on TV, um, and. I remember just we were we all again just stupid twenty five year old kids playing poker all the time ourselves. I grew up playing party poker online, and so we were all just obsessed with this with the the sport or whatever you want to call it. And um, I remember we just turned on the TV one day. And we're like the whole cam, like every shot is someone's hand with their face on ESPN in front of tons of people, and it was just this light bulb of, of like, well, what if we just put the product on all these guys, you know? Um, and so literally, we convinced. Josh, who was my boss at the time, me and my Tyler, uh, who was like at that time working with me in influencer marketing, we went to Josh and we're like, okay, crazy idea. We're going to go to Vegas and we're going to convince them to wear our product. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, I was like, we're going to get in the van. We're going to drive to Vegas. He's like, do you know them? Nope. We'll figure it out along the way. And he's like, whatever, just be back Monday. You know, it was like, that was the vibe of the environment that we were in. So we we had a big Power Balance van. We jumped in, we drove to Vegas. Along the way, we're like internet directories finding these people because they're not, they're not, it wasn't like they had Instagram accounts Mm. back then, right? So this was like, we found one of their mothers, okay, literally on an online directory called the home of one of the player's mothers. And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, Joe has this agent and she gave us his agent's number. And so we ended up through the same sort of just pulling out a bunch of threads, rounded up a meeting with five of them. Okay. So five of the nine. So we get to Vegas and we pull up, we have this meeting. We sit down and we had gotten approved a budget of $5,000 that we could spend to get them to wear the product. So we sit down and we're like, all right, guys, we got 5,000 bucks. Here's what it is. Would any of you be All you have to do is wear it, roll your sleeves up. Wear it on dirt while you play, and that's it. Four of them looked at us and went, guys, we bet that on a hand of blackjack. We're not doing this. See you later. And they got up and left. One of them, Joe Kata, said, yeah, whatever, I'll do it. He was the youngest kid at the table, the youngest player ever to make the World Series of Poker uh, final table. And we sat for three and a half days in the room. Because the thing about the World Series of Poker on TV is they just show you the hands that have action. But the reality is most of the hands have no action. It's hours and hours and hours of people playing poker. And so you're sitting in the Rio Hotel. like They play till like 3 in the morning, and then they get up and play at 9 in the morning. And we didn't know how long it was going to last. And so we just sat and watched, and he kept winning, and he kept winning. And we would be texting him, pull your sleeve up, pull your sleeve up. And we would call back to Josh, we need another night. And he'd let us stay for 49 bucks at the Excalibur Hotel, and we'd book another night. The next day we'd come back and then he'd suck out on the river and hit a set and be back in the game. Like if you go back and watch that year, it's insane how lucky Mm. Joe got. But long story short, he ends up winning. He ends up winning the World Series of Poker and still hanging in the Rio Hotel is a photo of him because the bracelet, the thing about the World Series of Poker, it's a bracelet, Uh, right? So it's bracelet, power balance, holding stacks of money. And that was the shot of him winning that they played on ESPN all day long. And it was just... That night we partied with him at the suite until like, it was just wild. It, the whole thing was just so stupid, but we just got so lucky.
0: That's amazing. I, I love that story so much. And I, I assume there's, you know, we could spend hours and hours and, hour and hours going through some of these stories. But one yeah. of the things I am interested in is having like a like a lit, literally a legendary set of uh, athletes and sort of influencers working with Power Balance. I have to imagine that there's yeah. difficulties. There are some things that go wrong. Oh, um, totally. Is there anything that sticks out as like, yeah we don't do this thing or just like a I don't know, something that that did go wrong.
1: I mean, oh God, so many things. Um, I mean like you just you do have no idea how to like manage or engage talent. So like we did we had a photo shoot once uh, with Brandon Jennings um, and Derek Rose uh, in Hollywood. and we did the photo shoot and afterwards we had a car that was supposed to take them back to their hotel and we get a call from the driver and he's like hey they asked me to drop them off to shop at rodeo mm-hmm. drive um and it's been two and a half hours and i have no idea where they are um and we're like oh my god what do, i don't know what to do like if this guy's pissed he wants more money i don't know where the athletes are or they're back to their hotel and like so there's just a thousand things like that that you just you just have no idea how to manage and you're just like figuring it out i remember one time we threw this huge party at uh the W Hotel. It was this poker event. And our PR team, we like, we we touted the crap out of this party. And we got so many people to show up. And I remember the, the capacity of the, the, the like the rooftop at the hotel was like full. And we couldn't, they wouldn't let anybody else into the hotel. And I remember I was like headset, like really cool. We've got this cool party going on. And Serena Williams shows up. And wants into the party and they won't let her into the party. And so Serena, it's like, I'm standing there trying to argue with the person from the W hotel to let Serena come up to the party. And she was getting pissed. And I just remember like, I don't know what to do right now. And this person won't let me in. So I'm like, go back up. And I like get three people to leave the party. And I come back and I'm like, Hey, look, they left. Can she come up? Just like so many stupid things that you're just and that, so that same party, this is a great story. Oh my gosh. Flow Rider, okay, is playing the party. We booked this deal to have Flowrider play the party. Flowrider shows up in the lobby, decides on the spot that he wants another $10,000 or he's not coming oh upstairs. Gosh. Okay. <laughs> so we have, he's there, decides he wants more money before he comes upstairs. And we've got everybody at the party waiting for Flowrider to come perform and so we're like, fine, we'll do it. But you have to put uh, our product in your next three music videos, okay? And so I should send you a link. So if, if like, so he's like, fine, I'll do it. So we, we pay him the 10 grand. He comes up, does the party. And then the next three music videos, we just sent him uh, like a bunch of product. We have no idea what the video is, what it is. Uh-huh. And it is like incredibly inappropriate, <laughs> all of it. And if you watch this video, I'll send you a link to it. It's like just him and a bunch of women and everybody's wearing power balance. <laughs> and it's just like, well, I think that's good. You know, like, so then we went down this music video route. We did some Jason Derulo videos. Like we would just like, we would just try it, you know? And there was like, we, we had no preconceived notion of what should happen. And I think that that was like the excitement of it all and probably why we screwed it all up. And, um, but man, is it I'm so thankful for it. So hopefully those oh, are some man. fun I ones. I love for it you. so much.
0: And I know we could spend, A long, long time going through it, but I... Maybe for another time, maybe for the next appearance, but I'd love to get into, I I think it's important to sort of set the stage for what what I really want to get into, which is sort of D2C and e-commerce and the world, I mean, the world we are living in today and sort of present day marketing. Uh, But I think it's important to first run through sort of your businesses, what you're involved in, and maybe we can kind of jump some or pick some places to jump off from there. Could you explain just, you know, the businesses that you have today and how each one is connected with like a brief timeline?
1: Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'll try to do this and make it. It, it, it's, it sounds really complex, but I swear it's, it, well, it's semi-simple, <laughs> but so we, uh, the whole parent company started at the top. It's called Dream Labs. Dream Labs is the holding company that owns all of our entities. Um, so we have common thread collective, which is our agency. So it's an e-commerce growth agency, about 90 people now that work in there, um, servicing consumer product, e-commerce brands and helping them grow. Um, and, Then we also own and operate six of our own e-commerce brands now through a holding company called 4x400. So 4x400 is the place where we get to act as operators and continue to live out our our dreams. So we acquire usually businesses sub a million dollars in that and then try and grow them from there. We have six Mm -hmm. of those now. Um, so that's sort of the second part of it. We also have a community group called Admission. And Admission is where we do content and training and webinars on a monthly membership style for really early stage. So zero to one million um, is usually most of the founders are in there. Some are, There's agencies and teams and people in there, too, but where we teach the things that we know. Um, and then we also have uh, an influencer marketing agency called Kinship that were former employees of Common Thread that we invested in them going and starting their business. Cody ran influencer at Kalo for us. And then Taylor, their other partner, worked directly for me at Common Thread Collective. So Kinship is an influencer marketing agency. And then the last company we have is called Tell Me Your Dreams, uh, which is a cultural development agency that's a program that was developed inside of Common Thread Collective that we spun off as a separate entity to be able to provide that service to more people. so the key is, of all these entities, um, the, the mission remains the same. It's about helping entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. Uh, and we do that in a v- variety of different ways, um, all focused on consumer product e-com. Um, and the way that we sort of think about it, and this is something that we've always done, we did this at Kalo, is that anytime what we try and think about is like vertically integrating our P&L. So, At Common Thread Collective, what we try and look at, or for an e-commerce business, we look at where does the money go, right? So agencies are usually a big portion of the fees. So we have an agency, right? The, um, you know, for us, cultural development was a big piece of it. And so we would spend a ton of money on this service. So we created that in a way that we're paying the money to ourselves. If we think about the software tool that we're developing right now for growth data, like one of our biggest line items was the software partner that we were using. And so we're always trying to figure out, hey, what are the things that we're spending a bunch of money on on the cost side? And if we're doing it, other people are probably too. And we sort of find business opportunities through the lanes of our costs and try to le- try to continue to expand the, the service offering and portfolio of businesses that we have from uh, there.
0: And there's also, uh, is there still left brain logistics as well?
1: Oh yeah, it's probably, it's, it's, I apologize. Yeah, left brain logistics, yeah, I can't even keep track, is a 3PL that we created off that same idea. So Kalo, when we started shipping, we found a friend uh, named Jeremy who was running a Uh, battery distribution company for computer batteries. And he basically what that meant is that he was a, he had a warehouse and he received product and then shipped it. And that was his business. And so when we tried to get Kalo out of our living rooms into a more formal setting, he was like, yeah, you could, I'll ship the product for you. And Kalo kept growing and growing and growing. And eventually it was like, Hey, Jeremy, like, what if what we did is we launched a 3PL company, had you grow it. We'll bring more clients to you and we'll guarantee you the Kalo contract as part of like our deal in forming this entity. So as partners, we formed Left Brain Logistics together. And now Left Brain, um is a 3PL that ships for consumer product e-com companies. So again, biggest line item of our business. Now something that we are sort of paying to ourselves and using as a platform to build another- I entity. love that.
0: Cause you, I mean, you're living the ethos of D2C and like literally the whole sort of value chain
1: of being direct to consumer. Our office, like- our office RIP since COVID like is a 20,000 square foot building that half of it is a warehouse. There's a photo studio. You have four by 400 and CTC. And so you literally have the whole life cycle of product ideation to marketing growth, to content production, to fulfillment all in one place that every day you watched up, got to walk up and see the whole life cycle happening um, all the time. So we are absolutely connected to every piece of that process. That's amazing. For
0: four by five four by 400, if I can zoom in there for a second. Yep. Um, what makes a brand interesting for you to acquire or to invest in? Like, in other words, you know, what gets you really excited? What, what are you looking for in a DTC business?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and we have sort of a, a detailed set of um, principles that we think about. Um, I'll give you the the core one. So one is um, an authentic founder story. So one of the things we believe that you can't recreate is... The reason for the product existing and the the deeply true um, problem that it was solving for somebody. And so, one of the things that we love to do is to find founders who are primarily product people who had a dream to solve something in their life. So, I'll give you a couple examples is like Brian Wilkinson, who was the founder of Slick Products, the first brand we acquired. Grew up riding dirt bikes in Hawaii, which has super red clay, and. His parents and him hated cleaning the red clay off their dirt bikes and the traditional wash would strip the lubrication for the motors. And so they came up with a different solution for the problem that they lived in. Right. Um, Amber Hawthorne, who started bamboo earth is like she was into clean skincare and making soap in her home before that was cool 15 years ago, and has been deeply genuinely caring about making natural ingredients and products since she started. And that's how we have the cleanest skincare on earth in bamboo earth. And so Each of these times and our most recent acquisition, Modern Fuel is like an engineer who made a better writing utensil um, for, you know, that he really wanted to craft out as a single piece of metal for his life because he used mechanical pencils and pens every day in his job. And so that piece of it, we don't believe we can fabricate that. Um, So that's like criteria one. It has to be real for the person and there has to be some heart behind the product. Um, from there, it gets way less, uh, soft, soft skill and more tactical. And that, like, we want to see 70 points of margin landed. Um, so when we think about what it costs to get the product all the way from production into the customer's hands, uh, we want to see 70 points of margin, um, on the product is super critical. Um, we want a great value to weight ratio. So if we, when we say that term, what we means is the AOV relative to the shipping cost, um, is super important. So if you think about our businesses, um, so we have FC goods, leather wallets, $170 AOV wallet, skincare, really small pens, tiny high AOV. Um, and then slick is the one that sort of breaks that mold that we, we've had to work really hard because it's again, shipping big bottles of soap, uh, and then genuine collars, leather dog collars. So like each of those, they're usually small products worth a lot of money. Um, so that just helps again with that margin, um, uh, to think about, uh, we want to see that generally speaking, like we look at, um, Something we call the four quarter accounting principle, which is this idea that of your revenue, 25% is going to CAC, 25% or less is going to cost of delivery, and then 25% OPEX. What we'd like to see is businesses that are over-indexed on their OPEX. Um, So an example 31Bits, a jewelry company that we acquired, again, small, great value to weight ratio we looked at their business and based on our, what the primary value proposition of four by 400 or one of them is shared resource, right? So we can immediately reduce the OPEX of the business and take something that's less, that's overweighted on that portion of the business. They have rents, they have agency fees, they have all these things. And we can immediately strip those out of the business and make them profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, like when we think about this, and this is another like sports analogy that I love um, is we think that one of the underserved opportunities in ecom is um, at the bottom of the market. So what I mean is that we think of success as buying a business for less than $50,000 and selling it for $2 million within two and a half years. And <clears throat> so the principle there is like, if you think about the Tampa Bay Rays, okay, So a team in the world series. Um, one of the things that they're, uh, that they're, heads of baseball operations, and it was really Farhan Zahidi who's now with the Giants and Andrew Friedman who's now with the Dodgers, one of the things that they discovered when they were forced into the constraint of small market Tampa Bay is that a win, so war, which is one of the primary metrics in baseball, um, that basically assesses how many wins a player is worth relative to replacement value. So if you had Mookie Betts, he's worth six wins a year relative to if you put an average major leaguer in his position. What they found was that a win was way more expensive on the high end. So in other words, to try and get a player that would take you from six to seven wins was really, really expensive. But to try and get a player that took you from a half a win to 1.5 wins was way less expensive. It was the market inefficiency in baseball. And when you're the Tampa Bay Rays, you can't pay that player to go from six to seven, but you can pay a bunch of people to go from a half to one and a half. And functionally, it's the same net outcome for your business. And I think one of the inefficiencies in econ is similar. In that going from half a million to 2 million, I think is really doable and really inexpensive. People aren't interested in paying for it. It's not sexy. Those businesses are undervalued in my mind, in terms of their opportunity versus businesses that have a great EBITDA at 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, the multiples you're going to pay on those are way, way, way higher. So if you think about that same principle of what am I paying on a dollar of profit, well, when that dollar is the millionth dollar of profit versus when it's the first dollar of profit, the multiple I'm paying on it is way greater at a million. And there's some good reasons for that, but we really think that our set and what we have the ability to do is almost in a lot of ways, like, and this is an oversimplified um, comparison is like, um, we're a pawn shop. We buy, we can identify products. We can clean them up. We have a market for selling them and we can get them to a place where we can flip them and make money. And there's margin there to be made. And so we're really excited. Like, I can't publicly say it, but we literally just closed on our first transaction yesterday. Um, so we're we're sort of seeing the model come to life in, in connection with how we dreamed about it. And uh, yeah, we're going to see how many times we can continue to do it.
0: I, yeah, I love the way that you think about it. And I know one of the other uh, things that you have an interesting view on is sort of your unique advertising philosophy and the way that you tie in metrics with frameworks. And I'm asking selfishly because my wife just launched her own sort of uh, handmade jewelry jewelry line, uh, launching, say, yes. earrings, Joycraft Handmade, a little shout out to her. Cool. So I'm personally wondering, like, how, how should someone like me, who's a beginner, let's just say, think about advertising yeah. uh, a new
1: brand, a new uh, product online? Yeah, so first of all, the, the number one thing I always tell people is define the rules of the game before you start to play. <clears throat> Meaning, what does it mean to win? Okay? And what I will tell you is that One of the advantages that we have is we have large data sets to contextualize results. So on Facebook, a 50th percentile, meaning middle of the road, outcome is a two-to-one ROAS, return on ad spend. So that means if you spend a dollar, you make $2, okay? And that's that's like a mediocre outcome. Now, this is for brands that are pretty well-established. I'd say for brand new brands, it's actually even lower. It's probably closer to a 1.2 to 1.5. So the question is that I would ask myself is, can I win at that margin? Can I win giving away 50% of my costs? If no, what do I need to do in order to be able to win at that number? So what do I need to reduce on the cost side of my business such that if I sell a product at 50% CAC, I make money. So that's the first thing is I would make sure that's the case. Or what reason do I have to believe? that I'm going to produce an outcome better than two two to one. Hmm. And some of those reasons, so like if you have to produce an upper quartile, meaning like a better than normal outcome, meaning I need a three to one or a four to one, the question I would have is, what reason do you have to believe that you'll do that? And here are some reasons that I think can do that. So we call it novel and niche. So there's two things that work really well on paid social. They, They produce outsized outcomes. Novel, meaning... It's something people have never seen before, right? It stops them in their feed because it's fascinating. That was Kalo when we started. I'll give you an example. One of my kinship, Taylor was just messaging me. They're working with a guy who created an at-home workout product. So it's like tapped into the zeitgeist of these weights that you like strap to your ankles and they're like boots and they look super funny. They're super interesting, but I've never seen them before. And they're getting a massive return on just starting the business on paid social, but really the product does a lot of the work. The selling is super interesting, right? Like it's just interesting to look at. And that's, that stuff goes, does really, really well on social. And then the second thing would be if you don't, if the product can't carry the weight, it's not novel. Like, is there a really niche relationship between the customer and the product such that the value proposition is really, really strong? Um, And so I think that in those events, you can get outsized initial outcomes. But what I'll tell you, jewelry brand, I run a jewelry brand. It's really hard. It's not those things. You have to be really honest with yourself too. It's not novel and niche. There are one gajillion earrings. So what I would say is that you've really got to think about the business as one, I would work really hard to develop organic traffic sources, blogs, content, influencers, DMing a thousand people, like all the hard grunt work to grow that, like we use the metaphor, grow rice or buy rice. You got to grow rice in a jewelry business because you're not going to get outsized um, paid social returns. Now, the great thing is high margin. It should be high margin. So you got to think about your pricing structure. So those are just like some of the things in the pot to consider um, Mm -hmm. as you get started. That's pretty
0: fascinating. What about some of the big mistakes that people are making with marketing in general? Like what are the things that, uh, you know, drive you crazy or make you pull your hair out there. Just like, this is a, a quick, easy win, or please just, you know, do not do this one thing.
1: Yeah, I think that um, the biggest mistake I see is the amount of budget that they try to advertise with on Facebook. Hmm. Um, so Facebook is a machine learning tool, which means that the value proposition is the ability to optimize based on outcomes. As more outcomes happen, they get better and better at finding more outcomes like that. So Facebook has a thing it calls the learning phase, which is basically their way of saying to you, hey, before you can trust the results, we need a certain number of inputs in the process. So we need a certain number of purchases before you should trust this outcome. And they'll tell you like that their general direction, and this is not specific, it's a general direction, is 50 purchases per week per ad set, okay? Before the data is even trustworthy. And so what I see a lot of people doing is they set up, they've got a $100 AOV, Right. So let's use your, your earrings. What's the, what's the price point? What's the, AOV uh, like product? 30
0: to $40. We'll say $35.
1: Okay. So let's, let's call it $40. Okay. A $40 AOV and they go and they launch an ad set with a $40 a day budget. Cause that's what they can afford. They go, well, I've got $40 a day I could spend on advertising. And what I'll tell you is that 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 is actually worse than spending $1,600 a day, even though it feels like it's way riskier to spend $1,600 a day what you're doing spending $40 a day is riskier. It's worse because the outcome you're not using the tool as it's most effective to be used. Right. And so when that happens, people end up building these constructs where before they even start, they can't really win. And then what happens is they spend $40 a day for two weeks and then it doesn't work. And then they go Facebook ads suck. Right. Um, and, And then it's like, well, this is a question of like, this is again, your job as a media buyer is to build great structure for your ad account. Did you build a structure to use the tool the way that it's designed to be used? And in most cases I see the answer is no. Um, I'll give you another specific example that I see a lot. Um, and I'll use Kalo again, cause it's an easy practical example. Um, Kalo rings. Okay. Two order types, $20 one ring, $40 two rings. What do you think the average order value is on the website? $30. Right. $30, $40. But guess what? $30 is indicative of no purchase. There is no purchase that you can actually combine the products to get to $30. Right. Okay. This is the problem with average as a measure of central tendency. If you looked at the modal order, it's actually $19 is the modal order. Um, it's the most common order by a lot. So when you go to set up in uh, a Facebook ad campaign, we use a tool called CBO cost cap campaign budget optimization with a cost cap. So basically what you say to Facebook is I want a specific outcome, uh, cost per acquisition, and I want it to be at that two to one Ross number total to one return on investment. so if I have a $30 AOV, what they'll do is say, Oh, I want a $15 cost cap. Cause I want that two to one and I'm using AOV as proxy for what I think will happen in this campaign. But if you tell Facebook, I want a $15 cost cap, what have you just done? You've just excluded them from targeting every single $20 purchase because a $15 purchase against a $20 order, if you tell me that's my floor, you've created a system that isn't actually designed to accomplish any order or right. sale that happens. And that like, so, so one of the things I always encourage people to do is to build a histogram of order frequency is to, and then to look at all your measures of central tendency of orders, mean, median, and mode. Because <clears throat> the, what they're going to tell you is actually how customers behave by different order types. And then you can build sales methodology or marketing materials to service each order type versus servicing the average, which is not a very good indication often. Um, it's the same thing with like, uh, people will use average order values proxy for thinking about things like free shipping thresholds. So like in the Kalo example, if I put my th- free... Thrish, or free shipping threshold based on the average order value. I'm thinking I'm trying to move people from 30 to 40, but I'm not, I'm trying to move them from one ring to two rings. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the thing I'm actually yep. trying to do. And I've got to think about that, not trying to get them from $20 to $30. That's not, that's not what's happening. Right. right? Um, so I think those kinds of real understandings of what is the consumer behavior that you're trying to go after based on your product set is something that people um, spend too little time on.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I love how you're sort of thinking from, First principles and really breaking the system down and trying to figure out okay what, well, you know like you said what is a win and what are the constraints that we're working with yeah. and um, wondering like what what are the other implications of that like that you don't have to give away all of your secrets but what are some of the other unique plays uh, from the playbook that um, it's from kind of these yeah first, so first so principles. big
1: ones this idea that all, not all purchases are made equal okay so <laughs> um, one of the big underconsidered um, ideas in running advertising is that we use, again, we use this ROAS metric return on ad spend as the definition of success. So play another numbers game here. So let's imagine I'm optimizing my ad account for a two to one outcome. Okay. So I'm looking across all of my ad sets and I'm trying to find what is giving me that outcome. That's what I'm optimizing for. Well, let's take two products. Okay. I'm a business and I sell candles. Okay. And I sell the candles and, Glasses. It's a weird company. We sell candles and glasses. Okay. The candle is a $50 AOV and 50% margin. Okay. Um, and the return rate on it is low. It's like 2% on candles. They don't get returned very often. Right. Um, but my glasses, let's say they've got a $70 AOV, only 40 points of margin and get returned 30% of the time. Okay. Okay. Um, at the two-to-one outcome, I'm making substantially different amounts of money on each of these sales, right? And that's before we even consider the lifetime value of each of these customers. So one of the first things that we'll do with a lot of our clients is go through and break down the actual net outcome of every purchase type by SKU. If someone orders this SKU, what's the co- what's the uh, average order value? What's the cost of goods on that SKU? What's the return rate of that SKU? What does it cost to ship it? And so then how many dollars do you make every time someone orders this product versus this product? And there's some cases where there's massive differences, especially in like apparel industries. If you sell men's and women's apparel as an example. So we have a client um, called Born Primitive. We worked with it for a long time to sell men's and women's gym equipment. The return rate difference between a men's pair of jorts and a women's legging is like 15%. You're talking about a massive percentage of the margin. You cannot sell them at the same target on the front end. Um, it's completely different. Like they're just apples and oranges in terms of the net result for you as a business owner. Um, and you got to understand that. You got to know how much money you make in the event of each purchase type. And that's just like a level of specificity that most people don't consider when when yeah. running an ad account.
0: Yeah. Before we wrap up here, I'd love to take a peek into your swipe file, quote unquote, as it were, um, and Ah. hear about some of the marketing examples or campaigns, maybe that you see that you really admire and you say, Oh, this is an amazing strategy or tactic, or I love the way that they did things. Are there any, um, that come to mind for you that are, uh, that you swiped recently or that you just sort of have as a, as a classic?
1: Yeah. So I'll give you a recent one and a classic one. Okay. So, and I'll give you the recent one because I like it because it's so simple. Um, so, One of the things that uh, sometimes we underestimate is how small creative changes can make a huge difference in outcome. So one of our clients that we've worked with for many years um, is a company called Pup Socks. um, And they sell print a picture of your dog on socks. And most of the business is basically, uh, like 80% of the revenue happens in two months. It's a Christmas product and it is wild in November and December. And so we are just beginning to ramp into that period. Um, and we have, are always running a lot of ads. It's a big spending account. And recently our, um, creative team was working through, um, different. So we read a book, uh, for all of our employees called choice factory. Okay. And choice factory is a book that talks about the different biases that consumers have and how your marketing can affect them. And so one of them, um, and you mentioned this earlier is this idea of social proof, right. And, um, Social proof can come to life in a lot of different ways, right? Uh, and But the one that's used on the internet most often is like a thousand five star reviews, right? Like, Again, it's just like this very general statement. Um, and so we'll go through this exercise where we'll make people write down um, – like they'll take a general social proof statement like that, and then they'll have to write it five times more specifically, mm. right? So like as an example for Kalo, um, you would go from saying you know, 10,000 five-star reviews to saying – 25 or 2.5 million deadlifts completed without breaking like you're taking this idea of a general statement and making specific to a subset of customers right um, and that's a great sort of exercise you can write that for a thousand different customers right you can say like you know 300 fairways hit in the last 30 days without breaking like you could come up with whatever the audience is or you can pull out subsets of your reviews and write them so we were doing this exercise and one of the one of them that they played on was like this old, you remember the old McDonald's, you know, like they used to have on every one of the arches, like a billion yes, served, yeah. right? And so uh, one of our writers wrote this headline of like 1.63 million pairs sold in the last two years, right? And one of the things you're trying to do if you're Pup socks is you've got a thousand competitors now. You were the leader. Everyone tried to knock you off. And it's hard to distinguish between pup on face to my pup's face to pup face to what is what is the one I should be buying? It's one of the primary problems to solve. And so when they came up with this headline, I don't know when this is gonna air, I might get in trouble for sharing this, but oh well. Yeah. Um, it like fundamentally altered the outcome, like increased CTRs by 60%, just changing this headline on the same images wow. that we were running. Um, and it unlocked massive scale of spend. And um, it's just another reminder of like, and again, there, we have a benefit, it's a big budget, you can test a lot of things. So you get more chances, which is helpful. Um, for sure. but that is a that is a super big unlock on a very small thing. Again, what I would encourage, what I want to share with that is like the root of the process of like what do you understand about your customers? What is the problem you're trying to solve, and then how do you just play with a bunch of iterations and variations of a of a longstanding idea like yeah. social proof? And how do you rewrite it more specifically, you know, a bunch of times? That. Um, so that's that's a fun one that is happening right now, like today. Um, and then, uh, one of my favorites uh, for a long time, and I, I like this one again because it, I think the, the the biggest marketing challenge is like we've worked with a lot of incredible companies, like you know we work with Hyper Ice and we work with you know APL, and the reality is like those brands are so easy to market for. the the product is incredible. It does most of the work for you, right? Like I always say that like advertising for Nike is the easiest thing in the world to do, right? Uh, the challenge is when like the product doesn't do that, and So we worked with a company um, called Aussie Merino wool and they were basically making knockoff Ugg boots. And they would say that that's, they were trying to take a position lower in the market and create a product that was an alternative to the competitor. And it was like, so that we had to sort of solve this question of like, why will anyone care about a product? That's a direct knockoff at a lower price. Like how do you actually get people to care about that? Um, So we came up with this story of this, uh, character um, named Guy Marino, okay? And Guy Marino lived on a wool farm in New Zealand and he made the boots and he shipped them to you. And just turns out he's incredibly sexy and works with his shirt (laughs) off the whole time. We knew we were selling to 35 year old women, okay? And so Guy Marino became this character um, that, you know, we created these funny ads, rented a bunch of sheep, did a production around. And then the real genius thing that I loved about it is we created a Facebook page for Guy Marino. And so when women would comment on the Facebook ad, Guy Marino would respond. Because most of the women, what they were saying is like, oh, I'd love it if he showed up at my door, you know, and so he would jump in there. And then we actually ran a campaign where we had him deliver five pairs of shoes to women who made those comments and then recorded it. Um, And so like this idea that, hey, the product doesn't do the work. How do you do something exceptional? And we, we have this phrase we like to use, which is live in an infinite creative universe, which is that. A lot of times you get constrained by the features and attributes of the product. And sometimes you have to set that completely aside and you have to live in an infinite world where you can tell any story Mm -hmm. that you want. Um, Mm -hmm. And and it's sometimes the product just demands that of you. So those are, those are two sort of a present small one, and then a bigger one that required more thought that I really like.
0: Last question for you. And then I'll let you go. Um, Sort of my guy Raz question for all the things you've done, success you've had, how much would you attribute to luck and how much to hard work and your own ethic?
1: Yeah. So, so what I'll say is that um, I am incredibly privileged (laughs) and I know this, there's there, I, I am the default um, privileged attribute. I am a white cisgendered male uh, or uh, heterosexual who grew up in a Christian context. Like I, I I've had every advantage that I could possibly imagine for me to state otherwise would be disingenuous. And I have learned that more and more in my life presently. Um, what I'm proud of myself for doing, alongside the acknowledgement of that, um, is that I just have a relentless obsession with solving problems, um, and in a way that's life giving to me. Um, it actually like activates my brain, and I enjoy it. Um, and so, along the way, like I feel like this job of being an entrepreneur is just: can you survive to the next chance? Can do you get another swing? Like, do you get another ad to run? Do you get another like? And if you do. Because the reality is the odds are stacked massively against you. But the way that you defeat odds is by repetitions, right? If I have a 12-sided die and my job is to roll a six, would you rather have 12 rolls or would you rather have one? My goal is to get 12 rolls, is to just keep rolling. Um, and when you do that, we have this saying that like me and my partner, Jordan, when we started, like the reason I knew our business was, would succeed is because we could always sell something else. Like every time if it came down to it, we could get in a room and get a check to do who knows what. Like it, it would, and we just believed in our ability to do that. And, um, and that just meant we got a lot of chances to figure out what our product was and what our service was and who the right customer was and all those things that are really hard to figure out. And so, um, yeah, so I don't know that there's a percentage breakdown, but I fully acknowledge that I have had all the privileges that life could afford and I'm incredibly blessed in that sense. Um, and then also like to apply uh, that privilege to incessant problem solving. And I I think that that's
0: where I'm at, man. Taylor, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah,
1: I appreciate the time.
0: Thanks again to Taylor for hopping on with me. If you can pop on Twitter and thank Taylor for sharing everything in this episode and let her know what you thought. A couple of takeaways for me. One, it's sort of a marketing cliche to be mission oriented and talk about what you wanna achieve as a business that has a greater impact. And when I first started following Taylor, I kind of got that same vibe from him with his mission to help people start businesses and achieve their career goals. But after talking with him, it was super evident that their mission really was at the center of every decision they make, every business they start, and how they empower their employees. Number two, your network is your net worth. Taylor really made the most of his connections and the relationships that he had built, which is how he was able to be in a lot of the situations that he found himself in and become so successful. And you mentioned a few times how he felt like he could have nurtured his network even more and emphasizes his network to everyone that he meets and works with. And three, also never forget about how Taylor thinks about an ad funnel and even goes as far to quantify the first three seconds of a video ad. And it's that sort of attention to detail it really helps them stand apart as thought leaders in the space and unlock new optimizations. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swifiles community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifilescom slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.